Machine. My name is Noah, and I'm here with Emily. Hey. And Rob. Howdy. For a very special episode of our podcast entitled Fax Machine After Dark. We have scoured the bowels of history to bring you the sexiest, the dirtiest, the most titillating facts you've ever heard. Basically, we will each share a fact that made us giggle when we typed it into Google. <laughs> and as always, we'll wrap up with a pub style trivia quiz loosely inspired by the theme. But before we get started, if you've listened to our last couple episodes, you've heard that on Wednesday, April 24th, we are doing our first ever live show in collaboration with the New York Taste of Science Festival and Biobus. In honor of the UN voting to make 2019 the International Year of the Periodic Table of Chemical Elements, we are doing a show about those elements, the fascinating people who discovered them, and the appalling strangeness of what they tell us about the world, as well as what they let us do to it. So check out our social media accounts on Instagram and Twitter at Fax Machine Pod and on Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast to find out more about the show and where to get tickets as we get a little closer. With that, Emily, what do you have for us? So this week I learned that in 1983, the Italian town of Calcutta was shocked by the disappearance of a holy relic that had been safely guarded there since 1557, the Holy Prepuce, also known as Jesus' foreskin. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, the story of Jesus' foreskin begins, as you might expect, with Jesus himself. According to the Gospel of Luke, Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day after his birth, per the Jewish tradition. Fast forwarding 33 years, when Jesus dies and is resurrected, his entire corporeal being ascends into heaven, except for, as theologians theorize, his foreskin. Unless you ask Leo Alatius, among whose 14th century work, De Propuccio, Domini, Nostri, Jesu, Christi, Diatriba, or, Ooh. for us non-robs, a discussion <laughs> of the foreskin of our Lord Jesus Christ asserts that Christ's foreskin not only ascended to heaven with the rest of him, but that it took on the special job of forming the rings of Saturn. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> what? <laughs> as miraculous as this would be, unfortunately we know that Saturn's rings are actually made of water, ice, and meteoroids. Thanks, Cassini. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, so so this guy said that the rings of Saturn are the foreskin of of Jesus. Yes. So he had what a is very, Jesus packing down He had there? a very high opinion of Jesus. <laughs> like, they're like 50,000 kilometers across, I think. Yeah. But it's really thin, too. <laughs> oh, okay. So this Leo Alatius guy was also really interesting. Um, so this... His, uh, as you said, the discourse on the foreskin of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think we actually have that text. I think it's referred to, um, we mainly know about it because it was referred to in uh, the Bibliotheca Graeca. I think it means like the Greek library or something. Um, and it's by Fabricius. Uh, and it was just uh, referenced there. But according to an as yet unconfirmed 19th century source, the point of it, as you were saying, is that he said the rings of Saturn were the prepuce of Jesus. Um, but another thing he's actually quite famous for, you know, as famous as he could be. <laughs> the reason you all know his name. The reason why, the reason why Leo Alatius is a household name is that he actually wrote the first, uh, what is called the first methodical discussion of vampires. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I found this really interesting when reading about him um, in his work, De Grecorum Hodiquorundum Opinionatum Nibus. Okay. Which, Today, today's opinions which, on... Um, yeah, which technically wow. means on certain modern opinions among the Greeks, hmm. as Rob was about to tell you. <laughs> um, uh, and I found this really interesting description of it. Quote, Possibly the first modern author to write a lengthy part of a book on vampires, <laughs> which is which just feels like a lot of qualifications there. Yeah. Um, but he was like very sure that vampires were real, um, and it, like wrote extensively on basically the all the legends surrounding them, uh, trying to build a case 
But anyway, back to the foreskin of Jesus. <laughs> yes, back to it. Which I'm pretty sure does ward away vampires. So. <laughs> it, from what I can tell, it seems to be capable of very many things. So, as you can imagine, the idea that Jesus' foreskin was still kicking it in the mortal realm made it a highly covetable holy relic. And holy relics, or saintly accoutrement, essentially, were somewhat of a collector's item back in the day. Uh, I'd compare them to medieval baseball cards. <laughs> um, actually, the Second Council of Nicaea actually decreed in 787 AD that every Christian household must have at least one holy relic in it, spurring the formation of a cottage industry around the sale, procurement, ew, uh, and forgery of holy relics. And these relics ranged vastly in their value. So to give a comparison that I'm extremely ill-suited to give, on one end, you had stuff that a saint merely touched or owned, so like the Al Padriques or Raphael Billiards cards, while on the other end, you had the Nolan Ryans, namely <laughs> the preserved-ish body parts like toes, humeri, even a couple of heads in the case of St. John the Baptist. But the worthiest relic of all, the Honus Wagner or Mickey Mantle, so to speak. <laughs> Honus Wagner does sound like a euphemism for penis. <laughs> there we go. Was the holy prepuce, of course. <laughs> so an interesting thing about relics in general is that they, there's still a requirement. If you have a, a, a mass or where you're having an altar with the Eucharist in the Catholic Church, you need to have a relic. Um, so it's, it's like actually a requirement in, in churches and naves. And so like there is like not to the degree that like every Christian needs one, but like kind of every church still does. Um, Interesting. Though then, again, like they can, yeah, they can span such a wide variety of very benign, chill, like... A saint poked this and then mailed it to me. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, modern saints yeah. have way more relics because, like, we're better at preserving things in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, like, for a while it was really, like, there are only 206 bones in the body, so, like, <laughs> everybody gets one. <laughs> yeah. like, the end of Mean Girls with the Crown, like, here's for you, here's for you. Here's for you. <laughs> I also, I find it really interesting that, like, the, the foreskin had to rise is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never heard it before. Perfect. <laughs> so this thesis that uh, like the foreskin of Jesus has to rise into heaven with him is in a way like a really interesting theological argument because like it wasn't with the rest of the body, but it makes sense because it is the body. He presented this idea that clearly hadn't been thought of, which you can imagine those circumstances where like a bunch of theologians are sitting around and they're all like, well, yeah, his body's in heaven. And someone's like, wait. What about the foreskin? And then there's this like <laughs> massive like like gasp goes through the crowd and everyone's like, we never thought about the foreskin. And one guy says, well, clearly it had to go to heaven too. And, and then people would be like, but where was it and how did it happen? And the guy, instead of like backing down, he says, not only did it go to heaven, but it's the rings of Saturn. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think one of the funniest things about that is that like Leo Alatius like made that claim basically right after they had been discovered. So he's just like, there's some rings up there, therefore. And they basically Looks went, like foreskin to me. Yeah. So the earliest recorded foreskin sighting uh, was actually on December 25th. So you're going to say it's on December 25th? Yeah, it was. Not when it was still attached to him because he was That's going to be like, it would hard to see it earlier. Well, even better, December 25th, 800 AD, when Charlemagne gifted it to Pope Leo III as a little thank you for crowning him the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. (laughs) Anyways, so after that initial sighting, in the centuries that followed, there were as many as 18 of them floating around Europe, like per records, uh, mostly taking up residence in various churches in France and Spain. This preponderance of prepuces understandably created an air of skepticism, with the likes of Martin Luther wondering how there could be such an excess of them, just as he wondered how Rome could have 26 burial sites for 11 apostles. I like that one. And then much later, the likes of John Calvin quipping things like, they couldn't let Christ's body go without keeping a peace. (laughs) (laughs) But, and this gets a little interesting. Uh, This doubt wasn't limited to non-believers to the extent that self-appointed experts in foreskin forgery emerged to assist in identifying fakes. How did they test this, you ask, with a completely correct amount of concerned hesitation and wincing? Well, through a taste test. Oh, no. See, I told you. Correct amount of concern. As David Friedman writes in his novel, A Mind of Its Own, The Cultural History of the Penis, A properly trained physician, chosen by the local priest, would chew the shriveled leather to determine whether it was wholly or partly human. Which, that's disgusting. (laughs) 
the, I also the, have the a most lot of questions. The most amazing thing about that is that they can tell. <laughs> yeah, but also, like... This is, this is only half human. <laughs> I just have a lot of questions that I don't want the answers to. Even though Pope Leo's papal prepuce was not verified by taste test, uh, though it was later confirmed to be the real deal in a vision had by St. Bridget of Sweden, he ordered its safe storage in the Sancta Sanctorum, which is a real thing, um, of what is today known as the Lateran Palace in Rome and what was at the time essentially the Vatican. In that Sancta Sanctorum, the prepuce remained for centuries until it was stolen for the first time by a German soldier during the 1527 siege of Rome. And the soldier was soon arrested and imprisoned in a village north of Rome named Calcutta, where he stashed his bounty in a cell, and it was discovered 30 years later. So at the time, the church acknowledged Calcutta's holy prepuce to be the one true prepuce, hashtag OTP, <laughs> and even offered 10-year indulgences to Catholics who visited, making Calcutta a hop and pilgrimage destination for centuries. But then, in 1856... The church was faced with a dilemma upon the discovery of another credible, relatively speaking, holy prepuce in France, hoping to avoid a catechismal cataclysm. Wow. <laughs> that was well done. And sensing that the relic had inspired, for their own decree, irreverent curiosity for far too long, uh, in 1900, the church decreed that anyone writing or speaking of the prepuce would immediately be excommunicated. Uh-oh. Sorry, guys. Wow. <laughs> So no, you can just cut all my parts out, right? <laughs> Rob's not enough. Um, they doubled down on this proclamation again in the 1950s and actually upgraded the punishment from a simple excommunication to Ivitandi or a shunning. Um, <laughs> and actually struck the Feast of the Holy Circumcision uh, on January 1st from the liturgical calendar. Oh. So, yeah, they were pretty legit. I will say well, I did... What were they eating at the Feast of the... <laughs> Holy, what was it? The, the Holy, Holy Circumcision. circumcision. The Holy Circumcision. It Just was like calamari. <laughs> <laughs> Onion ring. Donuts. <laughs> oh, man. I will say, as a side note, I did do some further research to see if the church has a record of following up on uh, these decrees, and they have not. So, should be in the clear. But, do you think these extreme measures phased the town of Calcutta, the proud protectors of the papal prepuce? <laughs> Heavens no! <laughs> they continued their annual celebrations of the band feast day as they had for centuries. And honestly, who can blame them? The foreskin had become as woven into the village's sense of purpose and identity as it wasn't into Saturn's rings. It's even a central feature to local lore. Over the centuries, the town's freak weather events, medical miracles, and even occasional perfumed mists have been attributed to the whoa, 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 whoa. I don't know what that what means. What is a perfumed mist of a prepuce? So does perfumed mean, like, positive? Or... I'd assume positive. Or the whole town's they like, were, oh, like, no! They what were, is that? like, odious That's mists. That's so. It's like... It's <laughs> 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 wonderful. All right. Um... Uh, so all of this is to say that the Calcutese were very disturbed in 1983 when news of the foreskin's disappearance from a shoebox in their parish priest's closet was announced. That's where it was kept. Were they, were they disturbed that it was kept in a shoebox in a priest's closet? No. So, so since the, most, the more recent um, like anti-foreskin papal decree from the 50s, uh, the town had actually been keeping the relic away from the public eye for most of the year, only bringing it out during that feast day to kind of try and avoid incurring the wrath of the Vatican, who was clearly not really into it. Um, but yeah, it was in the lead up to one of those festivities in 1983 that its theft was discovered. And unfortunately, the culprit and current whereabouts uh, of the foreskin are still unknown, but there are conspiracy theories abounding among the locals, and most involve the Vatican, unsurprisingly. So so <laughs> people think that the Vatican orchestrated its theft so that, the, the, so you they know. destroy it. Right. So do you think never that, bring or, do you or, think that there's a secret, like, special ops division in the Swiss Guard called the Briss Guard? <laughs> it's like kicked bum, through the window bum, and the bum, ceiling. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's that's excellent. Well, I will say that wherever Jesus's foreskin is now, I can only hope that it'll resurface someday and be rightfully returned to its shoebox in Calcutta. Perhaps, and really just to uh, cinch my excommunication, it'll return during the second coming. 
<laughs> Jesus. Thanks for tuning in to the last ever episode of Fax Machine. Yeah. This week I learned from 1785 through 1811, Captain Francis Gross published a, quote, Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue, which is a 200-year-old version of Urban Dictionary. <laughs> uh, it was the first extensive collection of words, both inappropriate and derived from slang, and really just informal. So this is a really cool book. I actually came across this. Someone was using it in a definition in another podcast that I was listening to, and they referred to it. Um, and I realized that it had to be a treasure trove of what people actually <laughs> talked like in like the late 1700s. And so um, it's everyone's great fortune I should say that in 2012, the Gutenberg Project, which uh, digitizes old books, mm -hmm. took this book and put it online for everyone to get for free. Um, and so you can get several of the versions, which were updated from 1785 through 1811, to find uh, amazing old-timey terms that uh, you didn't know were once said, possibly, or that are so commonplace now, you'd be surprised that they were vulgar tongue. So well, like, a couple examples of each. Uh, this is one I came across right away. Um, Maybe you guys uh, have uh, experienced an admiral of the narrow seas. As defined by Gross, an admiral of the narrow seas is one who, from drunkenness, vomits into the lap of the person sitting opposite to him. <laughs> <laughs> how, I don't understand how that's the narrow sea the element narrow to it. What seas. is it? I mean, I suppose that they've navigated between your legs. <laughs> is it? I don't wow. know. <laughs> um, because Admiral of the Narrow Seas was a, like an actual naval office in, oh, in Britain. Really? Yeah, because the Narrow Seas are the English Channel and the Straits of Dover. And then I think a little bit, I don't, can't remember the other waters between like Belgium and Netherlands and England. Um, so I'm really, I'm just really curious. Maybe it's like really choppy waters or something and you like throw up. What? So yeah. it's like, I don't know. Yeah. Or there was just one, like, Admiral of the Narrow Seas that did that, and he was like, you'll be associated with this forever. Me of, that reminds me of the, uh, the Garn scale for space sickness. Oh, yeah. From our, one of our previous episodes, yeah. who was the first uh, congressperson or senator who was, like, a sitting uh, legislator uh, to go into space, and he was just so famously space sick and, like, threw up so many times that they made, like, the scale of space sickness based on his name. Where, like, it, like one Garn was total incapacitation. Um, due to space sickness. <laughs> There's so many good examples in this dictionary. And actually, I'll give you one next that um, has kind of prevailed, or that is part of our language now. And so the term bucket actually meant death. And so to kick the like bucket. kick the bucket. Oh, yeah. Oh. No kidding. It's like still part of our la language and lexicon, but it was like considered like a really informal way. I mean, it still is, I guess, but it's an informal way yeah. of talking about it. But it was the first dictionary that really cited that. Another one that I thought was really good is bum fodder. <laughs> Any guesses? Nope. Like stuff to wipe your butt with? Yeah, toilet okay. paper. Ah. Bum fodder is just there good old go. toilet paper. <laughs> and then while, while I was in this section, there's one called Bum Fiddle, which says, the backside, see Ars Musica. And so I went to go see Ars Musica, which I think is... Ars Musica. Ars, yeah. <laughs> but its definition is a bum fiddle. <laughs> a bum fiddle. So it's an absolute recursive loop inside this dictionary. <laughs> The, the worst part about this dictionary is it doesn't give you anything. It just tells you what yeah, it meant. Yeah, there's no etymology. It's not telling you why at mm -hmm. all. And so it's it's a good one to roll through. And it's actually really impressive that it was ever put together because this was written by a serious scholar. And so this guy, Captain Francis Gross, he was an academic. He wrote volumes and volumes of antiquities uh, for which he gained like some notoriety in his time. Um, so he wrote the definitive antiquities of uh, England and Scotland, of Wales and of Ireland, and he revised them many times throughout his life. He was interrupted in his writings when he had to go into military service. Uh, and that was when he realized that he basically couldn't talk to other people because he had never like talked the common tongue. And there are all these terms that he found fascinating and amusing and all these things that people were saying in the military he had never heard before. So when he came home, he decided to spend time going out and like literally hanging out in taverns and asking people, hey, what does that mean? Oh, let me, let me just write that down. Oh, that's funny. Okay. And just... then he was beloved at those towers. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Every time he walked in, the bartender said, oh, good. <laughs> this fucking guy. <laughs> but so he collected hundreds and hundreds, like so many interesting terms that he just put into this book that he, he really didn't think anything of. It was for him just a pet project. 
because his best works were, you know, supplements to the antiquities of England and Wales and a glossary of provincial and local words used in England. Those were kind of his two categories of either strict history of the British Isles or like weird things that people say. <laughs> so in, in learning about sort of like old timey, you know, by old timey, I mean like really old sort of the <laughs> deep roots of like a lot of different like curse words. There's, there's this extensive debate on the earliest uh, recorded use of the word fuck, like as a curse word mm, with like mm. a, with like sort of the connotation of a swear word. So the first one was um, from a manuscript in the 13th century um, in Sherwood Forest. Uh, there was a person named Rick Windfuck. Okay. And this was why <laughs> this is a, this is spelled W Y N D F U C K. Um, and so people thought that that might be, um, sort of referencing something, you know, humorous or vulgar in some way. People studied it, and it, it probably was more likely a reference to the bird, the kestrel, which at the time was known as a windfucker without any sort of like vulgar connotation whatsoever. However, it also may have originally derived from old Icelandic. It's like fuka, which means to be tossed by the wind. Mm. So windfucker just might have been like, you know, some, like a tempest or like some wind that's blowing things around oh, and sure. just happens to sound like the curse word we have today. But then after that, there was an Englishman uh, named John LeFucker. <laughs> I, I said that was sort of a French accent, but it's spelled, it's obviously his first name is John, and then L-E, and then space F-U-C-K-E-R. Um, and he shows up in this just like administrative record also late in the 13th century, and it, he was imprisoned for murdering two people, and people thought that that had actually been the earliest, maybe even like he was given that name um, because he was like a murderer and people hated him. But people have studied a lot and they're pretty sure that his name is actually derived from the Middle English word uh, like Fike, F-I-K-E, which means to fidget. And his name probably meant something like John the Fidgeter. So mm. not even not even that. That's, again, just something that sounds like our modern word. Still a little bit of a burn. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's fidgeting all over the place. Um, but so people have actually sort of coalesced around the idea that uh, the actual first time we have recorded evidence of people using the word uh, F-U-C-K as like a curse word is in somebody whose name is Roger Fuck by the Navel. <laughs> fuck by the Navel, all one word. F-U-C-K-E-B-Y-T-H-E-N-A-V-E-L-E. Wow. That seems counterintuitive <laughs> somehow. But was he a Puritan? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think this is too early for the Puritans. This is, uh, okay. this is the early, early 14th century, 1310, around 1311. Wow. Um, again, we know this from like court records. I, I don't know exactly what he was in for, but um, that's sort of one of the re ways we have these. Like, Can we guess? <laughs> oh, actually, actually, I'm not sure I, it. yeah. So actually, we do know, uh, and, it, and it happens to be because of his name. And so, basically. Um, Histor the historian Paul Booth uh, is sort of the expert on uh, Roger, fuck by the navel, um, and suggests that uh, either Roger was a man who had tried through ignorance to have sexual intercourse through his partner's navel, or may have believed that this was the correct way to copulate, or that he had engaged in something called frottage. Don't know what that means. That Me neither. That's why I clicked on the link on Wikipedia around frottage. Um, and frottage <laughs> is rubbing a penis against a partner's navel, possibly in order to avoid conception. So this is probably the first recorded instance of the word fuck, meaning something uh, A, vulgar, B, sort of around something like like mm. sexual. Yeah. Um, I, 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 had a, I had the Puritans in my mind. Because always. Uh, all, but just because I always do, but also because uh, I was very entertained to learn that we actually have the word rooster that we use nowadays in reference to a male chicken, thanks to the Puritans, because they basically derived it uh, as shorthand for roosting bird, so as to avoid the double entendre of the more commonly used cock at the time. So mm -hmm. naming your kids fly fornication, totally cool. Saying cock, that was too much for them. <laughs> Never understand them. <laughs> so... I, I thought that it was interesting that I'd said this is kind of like a, an early version of Urban Dictionary. And it actually is incredibly important because uh, it kind of helped paint a picture of what language looked like 200 years ago in a way that we don't have preserved in any other texts, that we don't have for earlier time periods. Hmm. 
And people at the time were a little critical of it because it was seen as like a, a vulgar book. It was something that they thought was inappropriate to write. And it was like uh, some people thought it was unseemly and even like unchristian to have these words like recorded because they should, we should try to get rid of them and not glorify them. Um, which I hear a lot of the same arguments around Urban Dictionary. Like it's a website that promotes like these kind of often really gross and ridiculous terms that get used a lot. But what if I told you that Urban Dictionary is just as useful? Okay. (laughs) You're shocked. Do go on. So, um, Urban Dictionary has been cited in numerous court cases. Wow. Yeah, in both the the U.S. and British courts, which I think is so fascinating. Um, And so I'll give two quick examples. In 2003, Urban Dictionary gained attention after a news article revealed that the U.K. high court judges had used it to assist them in a case involving two rappers the judges unsuccessfully attempted to comprehend slang language that rappers had used. (laughs) Um, The second time in the United States that it was used in the courts, Urban Dictionary was referenced in a 2011 district court complaint by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, whose agents documented the meaning of the vulgarism Merc. I had to look up what it meant myself. Apparently there was a guy, he was a gun owner, but he had an illegal gun that he had gotten through uh, Craigslist. He went in to get this gun checked. The The store he went into took it because it wasn't registered properly and called the ATF, who came in and arrested him. And he said in a in a Facebook post, I believe, I got plenty of other guns, but I want to merc that cocksucker. Okay. And so the ATF had to determine whether murking someone was a, a criminal threat. <laughs> and so they had to go on the website and look up what it meant. Um, yeah, so in court they had printouts from the website showing slight variants of the definition of Merck. Wow. Did you guys do this in high school where, so, if you type in your names, there will be entries, and usually it's just kind of like, oh, like, and Emily is this, and blah, 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 and, like, I, I remember just doing this in high school with friends of mine, we don't look at each other's names. So, <laughs> I did that briefly, and I will say that of the three of us, one certainly stands out. So, okay, so excerpts from uh, the Emily entry. She may get a little crazy, well, you guys can vouch for that. Uh, usually artistic, uh, gorgeous eyes, blah, 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 emotions, <laughs> sure blah, name blah, is Emily? <laughs> thanks. Yeah, so it, mostly they're flattering things, right? For Noah, the most entertaining person you'll ever meet. Aw. <laughs> he has that perverted and sarcastic, hilarious humor. Hmm. <laughs> well applied to this episode. <laughs> uh, definitely the smartest person. Oh. Nice. Music genius. Nice. I think I might have written this tonight. <laughs> <laughs> sounds a little familiar. And so recall the previous ones are just kind of nice, flattering, all positive characteristics. For Robert, a sexy, sexy man with a massive schlong that all the ladies love. <laughs> the lord of memes and is respected by all. Anyone who confronts a Robert in a rude manner gets dominated by Robert. What a fucking legend. <laughs> This week I learned that when F. Scott Fitzgerald was concerned that his penis was too small, his friend Ernest Hemingway suggested that they walk around the Louvre and look at all the statues of naked men in order to compare Scott's penis to theirs. And then they did it. (laughs) Why is this not a movie? This is a true story. Uh, As recounted in Ernest Hemingway's memoir of his time in 1920s Paris as a struggling journalist and writer, it was called A Movable Feast. Um, And in this book, he tells the story of how one day F. Scott Fitzgerald, the author, you know, and his friend among, you know, and all these other like famous writers living in Paris and just hanging out together. Yeah, the Belle Epoque. Yeah. So basically, Fitzgerald asks Hemingway to have lunch with him because he said that, quote, he had something very important to ask me that meant more than anything in the world to him and that I must answer absolutely truly. <laughs> so Hemingway, he knows something's up with his friend, so of course he agrees, and then they meet uh, and talk shop for a bit until Fitzgerald basically blurts out, quote, Zelda said the way I was built, I could never make any woman happy, and that was what upset her originally. She said it was, quote, a matter of measurements. I have never felt the same since. Wow. Right? 
Now, the upset that he was referring to there is what Hemingway so sensitively refers to as, quote, her first nervous breakdown. Um, You know, the kind of thing you might expect to have when your husband is stealing entries from your diary and putting them verbatim into his books. In fact, in a piece she wrote for the New York Tribune, Zelda made fun of her husband's frequent word theft, saying that he, quote, seems to believe that plagiarism begins at home. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So another interesting detail included by Hemingway here is what they were doing right as Fitzgerald came out with what was bothering him. He said, quote, finally, when we were eating the cherry tart and had the last carafe of wine. Now, you might rightly wonder about that last detail, as they'd had multiple carafes of wine. Maybe all that alcohol had something to do with his feelings of inadequacy, of size, or performance down there. But don't worry, Hemingway had thought of that and assures his reader that although, quote, he drank wine at lunch, it did not affect him, and he had not prepared for the lunch by drinking before it. Okay? Now, this will all become very important when what happens immediately after they start talking about it. Fitzgerald confides that Zelda has devastated his confidence with this talk of a matter of measurements, and so naturally Hemingway tells him to follow him to the restroom and to whip out his penis. (laughs) So, wordlessly, they exit the restroom and sit back down at the table where Hemingway reassures his friend, you are okay, there's nothing wrong with you, you look at yourself from above and you look foreshortened. Go over to the Louvre and look at the people in the statues and then go home and look at yourself in the mirror in profile, to which Fitzgerald replies, those statues may not be accurate, to which Hemingway replies, they are pretty good, most people would settle for them. (laughs) I want to be clear here. Anybody can read this book. <laughs> okay? And the craziest thing, I think, I mean, obviously it's an insane story. And it's it's that Hemingway wrote it in a book. <laughs> like, this is his friend. Like, comes to him with this, like, incredibly personal problem. So I think it was actually published posthumously, I guess, to his credit. But he did, like write it down, presumably with the intent of sharing this incredibly private moment with, like, everyone. Um, (laughs) Which I think is just, honestly, he's pretty fucked up. Like, he's your friend, but whatever. Anyway, the part that I find most hilarious about this is that they actually go to the Louvre. After this, they leave the cafe they're at. Uh, and they go to the Louvre and compare their penises to the penises on the statues. And while there, Hemingway muses that, quote, it is not basically a question of size in repose. It is the size that it becomes. It is also a question of angle. Then he says, <laughs> quote, I explained to him about using a pillow and a few other things that might be useful for him to know. I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> using a pillow? What does that mean? This, is, this story drives me insane. And this is like two people who we, we give their books to high school students. Hopefully not this one. Yeah. Um, this one definitely is on the college reading list only. But there's another thing actually about this story. Can I make a guess on the pillow thing? Yeah, sure. Because I'm trying to think about what it could possibly be. And all I know, there's, so, I've heard... <laughs> In adult films, there's a there's an individual called the fluffer. Oh, so you're but, thinking that that's like also what you would do with the pillow? Because they don't fluff pillows, but maybe that's <laughs> maybe what they he's, do. Maybe, maybe, maybe they do. That's what that's I've never been in adult films either. <laughs> anyway, look, one of the other interesting things about the story um, that I I just was reading some other things about this uh, earlier when Fitzgerald was saying like those statues may not be accurate. He's right because actually. Classical statues were not accurate in penis size, and because Greek statues in particular are actually notorious for having quite small penises. Um, and so, trying to like read into this more, I read a really great article uh, on the website Artsy, which is sort of like a, a art dealer website. They have a lot of people that like sell and trade art there, but it also a lot of articles about art and culture and art history. Mm-hmm. So it was an article on the website by art writer Alexa Gotthardt, who explains that in ancient Greek society, a smaller, flaccid penis represented self-control, intellect, and good character, according to the Greeks. Mm-hmm. So as opposed to like the large penises that they depicted on lustful figures such as the satyrs, I think they're called, mm. uh, S-A-T-Y-R-S, who were f- apparently forest-dwelling gods that just basically got drunk and tried to bang everything. 
or on characters such as fools or on the ancient Egyptians who the Greeks really did not like very much. In support of this, in about uh, 420 BCE, Aristophanes wrote in his play The Clouds that the ideal traits of men were, quote, a gleaming chest, bright skin, broad shoulders, tiny tongue, strong buttocks, and a little prick. I love how in ancient Greece it was a burn to make a statue of your enemies with huge sticks. <laughs> <laughs> We showed them. God, that was so good. <laughs> this this fact was amazing, and I, I I had no idea how good the story behind it was. <laughs> but I was trying to find basically anything related to it in terms of, um, I think what I typed into Google was famous literary dicks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <And> so, <laughs> so I got. Two sets of results. So one set of results was about famous people who had um, kind of penises of note. Uh, <laughs> I mean, well, you have to expand on that. Uh, Wait, well, <laughs> was one of them Philip K. Dick? Because that would just be double whammy. I wish. Uh, but so <laughs> among these famous people on that list of dicks was Jesus and his foreskin. Oh, again. wow. <laughs> so we came full circle. Yeah. Also, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Um, it also mentioned there's a lot of um, a lot of lore around what happened to Rasputin's dick after, oh, really? after he was killed. They think that um, they because because he was kind of a, a sorcerer, they wanted to really defile him, so they chopped it off and threw it out the window into the snow. Um, at which point, the handmaid went outside and collected it to keep it for its magical powers, and they believe that it's still being like ferried around Russia for this reason. <laughs> so there, there are a few other kind of weird stories, but what I found far more entertaining was on electriclit.com, um, and this is or electricliterature.com. This is a fictionalization of seven fictional characters and how they would send dick pics. Oh, and so oh, I've read this. Interesting. It's great. It's just so interesting, and so they're all a little too long to share, um, but I'll give. Uh-huh. You- <laughs> how are these? <laughs> Just out of frame, it really doesn't work. <laughs> oh my god. This is it, the whole episode is priming for this moment. <laughs> but, but so the characters that they picked were Sal Paradise from On the Road. Sal is a kind of fake deep backpacker type who would put sapiosexual in his Tinder bio but ignore smart women who don't happen to look like Nadia from Pussy Riot. <laughs> it goes on, we don't need to. Um, Atticus Finch would experiment privately with taking, but never send a dick pic, which is a shame because the end result would be a phenomenally artistic shot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Holden Caulfield is a teenager. I'm not some kind of sicko. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, but, you know, Holden Caulfield would call a dick pic a phony. (laughs) 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 Oh, man. (laughs) If 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 you read... Uh, catcher in the Rye, and assume that every time Holden Caulfield says "pony," he's talking about a dick pic. It is a whole different novel. <laughs> All right, now it's time for our quiz. So, guys, based on the theme, things are just going to be generally kind of sexual, <laughs> kind, no, kind really? of dirty, vulgar, that sort of thing. Uh, are, you, are you guys ready? So there's sexual tension and we're taking a test. <laughs> we're back in high school. <laughs> I was just going to say. Uh, all right, so it's time for the quiz. Are you guys ready to take it? The quiz, I mean. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah? Okay. Fine. <laughs> okay, so question one. Where on earth could you find graffiti that includes restituta, take off your tunic, please, and show us your hairy privates? And the one who buggers a fire burns his penis. And Amplicatus, I know that Icarus is buggering you. Salvius wrote this. <laughs> Roman ruins? Um, Pompeii. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Ah. All these things are written on like the walls and preserved in Pompeii, as well as nearby Herculaneum, which was just basically another town uh, right on or near Mount Vesuvius. Um, so other great things that it were on the walls of these places... Phaleros is a eunuch. <laughs> Epapra, you are bald. 
Chie, I hope your hemorrhoids rub together so much that they hurt worse than when they ever have before. <laughs> and we, Ooh, and this is wow. one of my favorites. Is that, is that chiseled? Yeah. <laughs> and one of my favorite ones, um, this is actually on the, on like the front, or like the side wall of a hotel or an inn. Um, it says, we have pissed in our beds. Host, I admit that we should not have done this. <laughs> also rather sweetly uh there's one that's we two dear men friends forever we're here if you want to know our names they are gaius and alice <laughs> <laughs> it's just so cute so awesome. yeah. and there are gig- i mean there are so many like the list of that of like different graffiti you know phrases that were written on walls i mean every surface was just covered and like hilarious or incredibly vulgar often extremely scatological um (laughs) phrases and it's just really awesome you should definitely check it out question two in what 2003 romantic comedy does kate hudson name matthew mcconaughey's penis princess sophia how to lose a guy in 10 days absolutely right yes (laughs) question three the 1982 album Midnight Love by what recording artist contains songs such as Midnight Lady, Rockin' After Midnight, and Till Tomorrow, and was both the last album to be released while he or she was alive and the most successful album of his or her career? 1982. Yes. Hmm. Are they, um, are they better known for a single off of a different album? They're much better known from a different uh, song from this album that I felt would give it away. Got ah, it. okay. So we're not hearing the full track listing. And it's just an individual, not a band? It's an individual, yeah. Marvin Gaye didn't die as a young man, right? I don't think he did. No, but in 1982? And actually, I will say, if it was like their most popular album released, you said it was in it was the last album they released? or mm-hmm. before, they, before they died. Before they died. Okay, so it doesn't imply that they died soon after it was released. Never mind. Would you consider this person like a one-hit wonder? No. Okay. Oh, oh then I really have no idea. Annoying. Um, do you want to say? Oh, oh. Um, when did Frank Zappa die? No idea. Okay. More sure, n- we'll say Frank Zappa just to. No, it is not Frank Zappa. It is okay. Marvin Gaye. Oh my! No! God. And the song that would have given it away on that <laughs> album was Baby, "Sexual Healing." Yeah, I figured. Rocking after midnight. Yeah. Wow. Uh, mid, uh, the 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 album was called Midnight Love. Uh, so next, a bit of a shorter question, and this question sort of introduces the next question. So question four. What is the difference between a rated R movie and an NC-17 movie? So the in terms of what makes it that, or what it means to the audience? In terms of what it means to the audience. Um, so That's a N- good question. NC-17 mm-hmm. is no children under 17. Um, mm-hmm. R means restricted against children, but um, it means that under 13, you can't see it, period, I think. I think so. So NC-17 is more stringent then? NC-17 is the more stringent. NC-17 used to be referred to as X-rated. Right. Oh, okay. So then I guess it is. So the difference is that um, whereas in a rated R movie, if you're under 17, it requires the accom- an accompanying parent or guardian who's mm-hmm. an adult. Whereas an NC-17 movie, nobody under 17 is allowed, no matter who you have with you. Um, Leading into the next question, question five, the film The Thomas Crown Affair received an R rating solely for a long scene between Faye Dunaway and Steve McQueen in which both characters are fully clothed and neither character speaks. What are they doing during that scene? Violence has some qualifications for R ratings too, does it? Or doesn't it? uh, It could. But, but I, really don't, I don't remember <laughs> Faye Dunaway beating him to a bloody pulp. Like, <laughs> you seen the movie? <laughs> Thomas Crown Affair? Yeah. No. Yeah, I haven't seen it either. Okay, well, um, then I'll tell you it's, uh, I mean, obviously that's going to make this more difficult. Um, <laughs> it's a board game. They're playing a board game. Oh, really? So I'll, I'll even tell you that they're playing chess. I was, okay. It's a very, it's like an extended scene where they're playing chess. Is it? Neither character speaks. As I said, they're fully clothed. Um, there is a moment that gets a little sexual, and I'll ask you a sort of a supplementary question because you guys haven't seen the movie. Mm-hmm. What piece is used in sort of a sexual manner by Faye Dunaway? I mean, what chess piece? No. I'm thinking of the bishop and the. Okay. I don't know chess. I'm, I'm imagining the head of the bishop being somewhat phallic. <laughs> it's a little phallic. Yeah, that is the answer. And yeah. then she. I mean, my guess I, is going to be that all the chess pieces. So are basically, she. <laughs> 
basically sort of this is like there's a lot of like tension building in this scene mm-hmm. um, and then Faye Dunaway's character briefly let's just say handles a, one of the chess pieces which is a bishop mm. obviously um, <laughs> in sort of a sexual way by virtue of its sort of phallic appearance um, and then they just start making out um, and that was what got it it's entirely it's our rating is entirely based on that scene which is basically kissing and fondling a chess piece. And <laughs> wow. people have like said that it's it's such a boring movie that it doesn't deserve this R rating. <laughs> like like that its most salacious like moment was two people playing chess. <laughs> um, and should, that's what it got. Yeah. You should hope your children want to watch the Thomas Crown of <laughs> <laughs> So question six. The word pornography is derived from the ancient Greek words graphene which means to write or record, and porneia, which means what? I'll give you a hint. It refers to a profession. So what's your job? Prostitutes? Um, sperm <laughs> donor? Not my job. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, wait, but could it be, though, like, like to draw, like, sex workers? I can't think of, like, a logical profession that you would, like, even if you were to euphemize what porn is yeah. would you be like the baker <laughs> huh. they mas- massage the dough yeah maybe. <laughs> i have no idea no yeah no guess do you guys just want to throw one out there a baker yep oh it's prostitution oh! <laughs> come on you said it <laughs> emily whatever you just take it next time <laughs> uh, excuse me <laughs> That is a, makes a hostile work pod environment. <laughs> I'm calling HR. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, pornea means basically like um, like prostitution or the state of being a prostitute. Um, okay. And actually, the, the so yeah, so porn it basically pornea comes from like the word for prostitute and the suffix that's like a or ia ya or in the end something like that. Um, means the state of or the property of or the place of uh, so pornography translates to a written description or illustration of prostitutes or prostitution uh, so its earliest use is in a, a a work of greek literature that i'm definitely not gonna be able to pronounce but i think it's um deipnosophists it's d-e-i-p-n-o-s-o-p-h-i-s-t-s um, and it means dinner table philosophers, which I just thought it was like kind of a cool concept or just band name, um, <laughs> dinner table philosophers. Uh, and it was written by Athenaeus in the third century CE. So, uh, pornography with an I E at the end was used in the French language during the 1800s. The word did not enter the English language as the familiar word pornography until uh, uh, it was basically imported to New Orleans via French uh, in 1842, roughly. Um, the word was originally introduced by classical scholars as, quote, a bookish and therefore non-offensive term for writing about prostitutes. So, like, if you were, it was like mm. the academic study of prostitution. You would write about, it would be like pornography is what mm. you, is sort of like the name for your area. Mm. Um, but its meaning then, because of its association with prostitution, uh, quickly expanded to include all forms of objectionable or obscene material in art and literature. And as early as 1864, Webster's Dictionary defined the word bluntly as a licentious painting. Hmm. All right. So again, sort of like drawing from that question, uh, in question number seven, in 2015, porn website Pornhub attempted to crowdfund the first ever pornographic film, Where? Raising $236,086, but failing to get it up to the required $3.4 million. So to fund the first film to be recorded in this place? It was the first ever pornographic film uh, filmed where? Mm. Like, basically, I'm between, like, <laughs> Abu Dhabi and Antarctica. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, yeah, I was thinking, like, yeah, I was thinking that or New Zealand or something. Just co-op some uh, of those, like, panoramic shots from Lord of the Rings and then, you know. But someone must have done that. <laughs> like... With, like, a handheld camera, I hope. Oh. Just, I mean, I, I don't like, know. Like, oh, filming there or Lord of the Rings porn? Because, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. It brings the, a whole new turn. The one ring. <laughs> <laughs> it brings a whole new uh, definition to Hobbit Hole. 
<laughs> Maybe like zero gravity, like in those planes that fly and create that. That sounds hard. I should know much more about that. <laughs> sounds technically <laughs> really challenging. Yeah. <laughs> I know, you said New Zealand? Yeah. The last two times you've been right and I said something else. So <laughs> let's do that. But by that rule, I'm not going to be right now. <sighs> New Zealand. <laughs> it was space! <laughs> <laughs> Guys, you keep saying the right answer and talking yourselves out of it. This time I feel like I talked to you to your other answer. <laughs> so the answer was space. And in fact, the Pornhub.com was in talks with multiple uh, actually undisclosed private space flight companies. And a Space.com article about the campaign mentioned that in 2008, Virgin Galactic, ironically, um, received <laughs> and then yeah, <laughs> received and then rejected a one million dollar offer from an undisclosed party to shoot a sex film on board their spaceship too. However, while not actually making it to space, the adult entertainment production company Private Media Group has filmed a movie called The Uranus Experiment Part 2, where an actual zero-gravity intercourse scene was accomplished by flying an airplane to an altitude of 11,000 feet mm-hmm. and then doing a steep yeah. dive, allowing for only one 20-second shot, which I understand is respectable. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the last question, question eight. Corn smut, <laughs> or huitlacoche, is a culinary delicacy in Mexico, but technically is a boil caused by a disease. The organism responsible for corn smut is a member of what taxonomic kingdom? I thought it was a fungus. Is it a fungus? It is a fungus. Okay, good. Yes, okay. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I Finally. <laughs> I was, I was going to wait to see if you guys try to talk yourself out of it again. Um, no. <laughs> so, huitlacoche is also known as corn smut. Um, it's a plant disease, specifically of maize, um, and it's a fungus. Um, and so, it belongs to the family of multicellular fungi called the smuts. Um, obviously, that connects because smut also refers to, like, yeah. sort of, like you know, other dirty things. You know, mm. um, and actually um, comes from the Germanic word for dirt. Is it also the, the root of the Yiddish schmutz? <laughs> I don't know. Probably. Like you got some schmutz mm. on your cheek. Yeah. yeah, so actually both the um, the fungi and, and the word like smut, like in the sort of like vulgar sense, are both derived from this Germanic word for dirt. Uh, and yeah, obviously dirty, that makes sense. Um, but the fungi get it because of their, quote, dark, thick-walled, and dust-like teliospores, uh, which are which I clicked on, and then basically it was like, teliospores are spores. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, so it's got a lot <laughs> of spores, tibia. and they're dust-like, they have thick walls, and they're dark, and that's what smuts have. Um, but some other examples of smuts are potato smut, the covered smut, mm. and the loose smut. <laughs> <laughs> And another kind of famous one is actually ergot, um, which causes ergotism in humans, yeah. also known as St. Anthony's fire, due to severe burning sensations in the limbs, as well as to the Hospital Brothers of St. Anthony, which was an order of monks formed in 1095 CE, who specialized in treating that disorder. Wow. wow. Yeah. That's all we have for you this week. Keep a lookout for more information about our live show in New York on April 24th. And check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Fax Machine Pod and on Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast. And while you're still listening, and if you're so inclined, please give us five stars on whatever podcast platform you use. And as always, a big shout out to the official theme music composer of Fax Machine, Anthony Antonelli. Bye. Bye. Bye.